I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to our webpage at ithinkthereforeifan.com. That's all one word. Click on the link that says donate and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, Carrie, The Nun, Malevolent, George Romero Films, a whole slew of them, 28 Days Later, The Twilight Zone, and Rosabel Edney. You've been warned. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. All right, it's October, so it seems appropriate to have a spookier episode, a Halloween-themed episode. Uh, So today we're going to talk about the philosophical issues related to the undead. Nice, nice. Yeah, that, that, that should be a lot of fun. Um, lots of great philosophical topics. Um, a lot of it's sort of well covered, so we're going to try to do some things um, that, that aren't um, the standard, oh look, George Romero is making a, a point about consumers being like zombies and Dawn of the Dead sort of points. Um, but yeah, so some of the, the things we'll talk about, um, the badness of undead, Undeath. Why is it bad to be a zombie? Why is it bad to be a vampire exactly? Um, some things about um, the official story of Dracula. It's, it's interesting that um, for some reason certain things over the centuries have been added to the legend, mm-hmm. um, but not everything. Um, so we'll get kind of a... We'll develop a list of necessary and sufficient conditions for... Is this So we're going to talk about vampires being a vampire in particular or dracula specifically yeah dracula specifically okay um although it'll it'll maybe generalize out right um so goes dracula so goes the whole vampire neighborhood right so um not everything true of vampires is true of dracula but pretty much all the things that you think of as being true of dracula then get applied to almost all the other vampire legends um yeah, so maybe do a little metaphysics along the way. Um, I think there's some interesting ethical issues to to tackle. To what extent can the damned be held responsible for their actions? Right, right. Yeah, you're, you're cursed. You have evil flowing through your veins. Um, you, you don't have quite the normal range of free will there, if, if, if any at all. Um, yeah, so it's some good ethical stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff on the undead's pretty well worn. Um, you know, there there must be one thousand papers about um, how the zombies in um, Dawn of the Dead, you know, Romero's original Dawn of the Dead, um, wandering out around the mall look like everyone wandering around the mall at Christmas time. We'll probably gloss over that topic. One thousand papers. <laughs> At least, okay. yeah. Um, maybe more. I, you know, when I think of all the people in English departments writing the same paper over and over, <laughs> I now want to revise my estimate to two thousand papers. Wow, um, it's an important topic. Yeah, I might say a little bit about the paradox of horror, although we we discussed that um, a couple weeks ago as well. Um, so this this should be fun, um, and we're going to do a, what we're liking this week, like we always do, and. Um, you're going to be shocked to find out that almost everything on that list um, has something to do with the horror genre. Yep, that's what we do in October. <laughs> yeah, all October long. Okay, so let's let's start with the metaphysics of being undead, right? What is it? What is it that makes something actually undead? Um, so one, I think. You know, you, it has to be the case that, that you've died, right? So you, you needed to have been living previously and then died, um, such that now you're no longer at rest, right? Um, so you got to be the kind of thing that can move around or do certain sorts of things. Um, so it seems, seems pretty simple, right? You, you, you lived, you died, and 
you're brought back in a way, but you're not, you're not brought back in a way that you're just made living again, right? So maybe something like Frankenstein's monster wouldn't count as undead. That's, you know, by definition, huh. okay. that's just reanimated, right? You just, you, you turned the thing back on. You might think in the case of uh, Frankenstein's monster too, that um, it's, it's an entirely new thing. It's made of different things, mm-hmm. right? So it couldn't, it couldn't just be typically the undead are versions of previous people, right? right. right. This is where, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you might say something like, well, you know, if it's, if it's a single brain, say, you know, uh, Abby normal or whatever that guy's name was in young Frankenstein that, you know, if that's where the self resides, uh, something like that, if you, if you can get the same consciousness back, maybe. Um, okay. <clears throat> but yeah, I think of Frankenstein's monster is, is just, being like, you know, somebody had eight cars, none of them worked. So they, they took all the best parts from each and, <laughs> yeah. and sparked them back up. So the paradigm cases would be vampires and zombies, right? Um, which, in the case of vampires, it's um, a little weird in that um, <clears throat> it seems like they just kind of turn. They, they never... They were never dead. Never actually die, but on some versions of And in of fact, this... I, I, well, I don't know. I, I think that they can't... I mean, on a lot of vampire sort of stories, they um, you can't drain a person. Like, if, if one vampire is turning the other, if if they drain them to death... Mm-hmm. One that'll hurt the vamp. This is like in the in the uh, interview with the vampire series. It'll hurt the vampire that's doing the draining. Right. Uh, but but second, you can't reanimate that because you're, you can't you can't successfully turn that um, person whose blood you've just drained because they have to be alive to drink your blood. Right. But it, but at some point by stipulation, they're not living anymore. Right. They've they've left the world of the living. So in in some sense, they've died. Even if there's never some intermediary stage where you're like, you know, Frankenstein's monster after death before reassembled, right? So you're never necessarily dead the way that we're dead. But um, if by definition, vampires are not living, then they can't. Well, here's here's part of what I think it is with vampires is that the um, the ordinary bodily functions, at least on most vampire stories, stop working. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not you don't continue to need regular food. You don't Mm -hmm. continue to you don't. Um, your heart isn't beating. I mean, uh, these aren't these aren't sto- aspects of the story that make actual biological sense. But right, mo- right. on most stories about vampires, their bodies are just sort of shells for their cursed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Ice cold existence. Right. So the other paradigm case is, is zombies, and they pretty clearly do just fit your conception of undead, at least as I've just defined it. Um, they're people. They died. Some of them have been dead, you know, in the various stories um, for hundreds of years or thousands of years. And then they, they come back and something um, animates them in some way. They're not at rest, but they don't, they're not in any sense living, generally speaking. Um, and yeah, Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later um, there, you know, the, the zombies are just... There are people that have that have um, contracted some sort of virus, virus or dead yeah. people that have contracted a virus. Um, and then they're sort of living again. They just have this rage. But that's that's an outlier. I think it's an unusual... So it's... One kind of unusual case is the is a ghost. Because a ghost kind of matches the, this, the criteria that you just put forth, that they're, they were once alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, typically we think of ghosts as being dead, not undead. Right, right. Um, yeah, so a couple things going on there. I mean, some people would say, yeah, that's not a paradigm case of undead. I, I think they are. I think they they fit the definition. Um, with the following exception, right? Uh-huh. So at least on some ghost stories, um, the, the ghost is just the part of you that never died, right? It's it's a sort of dualist metaphysics yeah. where you have a, a soul, a you know, physical part, um, which is your body and the non-physical part, which is your soul or spirit. And your physical body dies, but the other part doesn't. Um, think of like the Beetlejuice story, right? Um, that some of them are just kind of trapped um, without yeah. a without a place to be. Um, 
So depending on on how you specify it. Well, what what about this? Um, are all the other examples of undead beings um, embodied? I mean, is that a crucial part of being undead? Is to be embodied? Um, uh, I don't know because I I think banshees are undead too, but. Um, are ban- maybe I don't maybe okay. I don't quite get banshees. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe maybe the the definition runs up against that and ghosts fall on the other side of it. Okay. So another interesting question we can ask is whether the undead are morally responsible for their actions. So here are two criteria. There may be more than this, but here's two criteria we'll discuss. In order for a being to be morally responsible for its actions, um, many think it has to be possible for them to do otherwise, you know, for them to uh, choose from between more than one option, right? That, 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 that moral responsibility relies on free will, and free will requires the ability to do other than you, than you in mm-hmm. fact do, right? To, to choose from between options. Okay, that's first. Second, we don't tend to treat non-human animals uh, as if they're morally responsible because they're not uh, capable of reflecting on their possibilities, right? Um, maybe for other reasons too, but that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons. So I think these can help us in these cases uh, identify the degree to which different undead creatures are morally responsible. So it strikes me that at least on most zombie shows and, you know, elements of pop culture where zombies pop up, zombies seem to be more like non-human animals. They look a lot like human beings because they were previously human beings, but you kind of might think, and and The Walking Dead explores this a little bit, but you kind of might watch what the, the living humans are doing to the zombies and be like, Jeez, I mean, <laughs> these are just also creatures that are trying to get resources to survive. And we would cringe if what they were doing was like, um, you know, killing all the squirrels in the world. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I don't know, I'm just picking a, a non-human animal. But, you know, these... Now, of course, sure, the zombies are trying to attack them. But they could just leave the zombies well enough alone. And, right, You know, right. I mean, then the zombies wouldn't be after them. Right. I mean, every now and then you'll see a... a zombie story where they actually do kind of adopt that sort of attitude, right? Um, the dark comedy Fido is like, yeah, well, we can, we can find a way to, you know, keep them fed and happy and who knows, maybe even have the kind of relationships that we have with animals uh-huh. with them. Um, so yeah, I'm just to kind of go against what you're saying slightly, okay. um, in a number of stories, including The Walking Dead, right, and then certainly you know Romero's um, early trilogy, um, every now and then they'll they'll build something into it where they'll say, well, they they do what they know. They're not as just kind of blithering as they're often presented. So I'm thinking about um, you know the, the second season of The Walking Dead, and we're first seeing Morgan. Um, and they've got his wife who's turned coming to the door and she's trying to get in her own house. Cause she's, there's something, I, th- I think it doesn't rise to the level of, of free will as, as you've right. set it up. Um, but they, they present him as, as, you know, having some connection to a, a past knowledge base or something sure, like that. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Well that, but, uh, that's also true of like a dog. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a dog knows where it lives. You know, it has some. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, that's not to say uh, we don't have moral obligations to dogs or something. But, 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 but they don't have moral obligations to us. Right. The, right. 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 And then in the um, the sort of later Romero films, um, it seems like the zombies are, you know, full moral agents. They're actually making choices and enter into a kind of negotiation with humans. But that's such a bastardization yeah, of the story. Yeah, at that point, that you... that's, I don't know that you're actually even dealing with a zombie anymore in that case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's so far removed from what a zombie typically is. Well, this reminds me of something else I want to talk about. We'll, we'll come back to it in a minute. But let's go through some of the other cases. So zombies, 
No moral agency. What about what about vampires? So zombies are uh, zombies are limited by that component. They they don't have the cognitive capacities in most cases in most zombie stories to reflect on their choices, right? Mm-hmm. Or to you might think even make choices at all, right? Um, so vampires are an interesting case because it, it really depends on the vampire story, and vampire stories have become. Well, I don't know why anybody ever thought that they had to conform to, like, the Dracula mythos anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, because they can go in whatever direction they want. But they've become more, you know, poppy and cute over time. Mm -hmm. But initially, and in some of the most iconic vampire stories, um, vampires are cursed, Mm -hmm. right? So, um, so... And 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 this the nature of the curse is such that uh, they can't help but to crave blood, mm-hmm. right? And of course, different shows deal with this differently. Um, True Blood, the the HBO series, did a good job of like exploring what kind of alternatives you could mm-hmm. uh, right. come the up with. Blood yeah, and... Uh, and and right, right. And on some early versions, curse doesn't just mean the crave blood must attain it, but mm-hmm. um, somehow. They're in virtue of being cursed. They're necessarily evil, right? In the right. same way that theologians might say God's necessarily good, right? An omnibenevolent mm-hmm. being, right? These are omni evil beings. That would certainly serve to restrict their free will, right? If mm-hmm. if nothing else, if if they had free will, they could only choose evil things. Yeah, being being fully evil or omni evil. I mean, really, in a way, I, um, vampires are sort of. Antichrists. I mean, they're not the Antichrist, but all the, the all the all the sort of imageries related to uh, vampires is an inversion or a flipping of the stories you might tell. Like Christ is associated with light, and vampires are associated with darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know the cross is a symbol of Christ, but the cross uh, is right. problematic for vampires. They can't Weakens get near them, it. Burns right. Them. Um, so they're kind of associated with these. Maybe not demonic, maybe demonic, depending on the story, but definitely the kind of the uh, the the opposite of of um, Christian goodness or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but then, of course, most vampire stories quickly and not Dracula, but most vamp. But even he, he his his love is something that kind of seems to make him human. Like he retains mm-hmm. some human qualities. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's an old school romantic. Yeah. But but most vampire stories quickly turn away because everybody loves a vampire story where the vampire's cursed, but there's that girl that you know <laughs> keeps him keeps him from being evil or something like that. Um or or guy. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but so, I mean, you might think the nature of the curse itself makes it the case that they don't have free will. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um I would think that, or again, you know, severely restricts it yeah. to, you know, only being able to make a, a certain very narrow range of, of choices, right? Mm-hmm. Mostly not free. I mean, so unlike the zombies, the the vampires have um, higher cognitive capacities, but they also have been cursed to only be able to eat one thing. And mm-hmm. in some stories, it's not just blood, it's only human blood. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, how do, in that sense, are they any different from non-human animals that just they, they are, they're driven by everything is driven by a desire to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And so the zombies just I mean, the vampires just got to do what they got to do. Yeah. I mean, they're not trying to stay alive, but they're trying to stay, stay alive, whatever the heck that they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're trying to survive. Yeah. All right. So something you said a moment ago reminded me of something I wanted to talk about, which is um, how is it? Or why is it the case that certain parts of the vampire narrative um, become kind of a, an official part of mm-hmm. that? Um, and these are things that, are, that weren't there in the original Bram Stoker novel. Um, and other things are not. I mean, it, it, it seems oddly arbitrary that, you know, some years later, garlic pops up as this thing. And now... 
you know, you do a you do a vampire story, you pretty much have to include that, mm-hmm. right? But then there's other parts of the story. So yeah, you know, my favorite example of this is, you know, Dracula makes an appearance on one episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you know Dracula has the property of of being BFF. Um, with Xander, Xander for a little while and, until Xander famously screamed, I'm not going to be your butt monkey anymore. Um, and good for him. Um, you know, but that, that's the kind of thing that will never be part of the, the, the Dracula story. Um, other things get to be very much part of it. Um, why are some things official and some not, right? And again, if, if they were all in the original story, Mm-hmm. That would be fine, but lots mm-hmm. of things from the original story aren't even there, right? So now you get this sort of Bella Lugosi esque thing, and and yeah. there's a norm that you shouldn't deviate from. Um, yeah, I wonder. You know, vampires are very much of our pop culture consciousness now. I mean, everybody that's an element of pop culture that you can count on pretty much everybody being aware of. Uh, but I doubt that it's the case that everyone has read Bram Stoker's Dracula or, I've, you know, so I think that there are, um, you know, it's not that we're like, well, garlic is canonical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like certain things, we don't know where they came from. We sort of roughly, you know, falsely believe that they were original. Mm-hmm. Um, or something like that. So, so it's just the way that it's played out. It's it's not we're sort of discriminating and and we've collectively evolved this great story. Um, I think there's nothing like a collective vetting process, right? Well, well, I think that there are certain elements of the the Dracula vampire mythos that could not you wouldn't have an instance of a vampire if you didn't have that thing. So, uh, sucking blood, Mm -hmm. necessary, right? And I think a lot of those inversions of Christianity are necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you you don't have a vampire. Right. Being being undead, right? You Uh have to not be living anymore in in some sense. Not being able to go out during the day. Mm -hmm. But even as I think about that, I can't remember if that's original. I think it is. (laughs) <laughs> can can Dracula from Bump Stuger's Dracula go out during the day? Um, I don't recall. I know that they they rigged things a couple of times um, in the Buffy Angel series, right? Where Angel um, got a day, right? A demon gave him a, a day out in the sunshine, and mm-hmm. that that seemed like really rude to the whole the whole legend <laughs> of of vampires. And then um, in the final season of Angel, when um, he joined forces with um, Wolfram and Hart, and they they gave him that special window that would allow him to open the window and get sunlight to come in uh-huh. on him through the day, because uh-huh. the the harmful parts of the sunlight were filtered out by technology. Okay, um, yeah, you know, and that, and that seemed wrong too. It's like oh, there you got the you know the the good guy vampire, no no evil coursing through his veins, sitting in his you know penthouse. Um, office with the windows open, just enjoying the sun, right? Um, yeah, that reminds me. I saw a fun meme on this topic, where that the caption was "Science solves everything," and this this vampire about to bite this guy, and the guy informs him that the moon isn't producing its own light; it's just a reflection of the sun. And then the the, va- the vampire drops dead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I saw that too. branch of metaphysics that I've always found very interesting uh, has to do with the badness of death, right? There's a, there's a lot of cool literature on just why death is bad. And there's this, this sort of puzzle, right? It goes back to the Epicureans that say, you know, when um, you're there, death is not, meaning, you know, as long as you're alive, you're not dead. And then when you are dead, when death is there, you are not. Um, so you're not there to experience your own death. So how, how is it that the death ends up being bad? Yeah. Go ahead. And there's this asymmetry problem that the yeah. time before you existed, uh, the time before you were living wasn't bad. Um, if, if, if death is an experiential blank and the time before you existed is an experiential blank, then they should be on par with one another in terms of their badness. But we don't tend to think of the time before we were born as bad. 
Right, right. So the the two main sort of strategies for um, you know resolving these puzzles um, lie in talking about either deprivation or desire frustration, right? So the deprivation account um, comes from the philosopher Thomas Nagel, basically says that the, the badness of death lies in all the good things in life that you're deprived of. Um, the desire frustration account from Bernard Williams says um, what's bad about death is that certain of your desires when you are alive are frustrated. They, they go unsatisfied. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I, I don't have a dog in that fight. I, I think elements of both of those views um, capture something that's bad about death. And, and maybe there's lots of things that are bad about death. But notice that neither of those views accounts for the badness of undeath, right? Why is why is being undead bad? Right? I mean, people people don't want to be undead. In fact, you know, it's it's sort of a common trope, you know, on um, zombie shows. It's just a lot in The Walking Dead. They'll say, well, I don't want to end up like that, you know, so, um, you know, someone will get bit by the zombie. They'll um, be just about to turn. Someone will sit next to them with a gun, right, or a shovel or whatever they have. The moment they turn, they, you know, they kind of pop back up undead. They kill them because right? mm-hmm. people really don't want to be undead. Um, but it, and they don't want to be vampires either, except oh, I for would totally be a vampire. That's because you're still a goth kid. Um, <laughs> in my heart, in your heart. right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, well, let's talk about the two cases maybe separately. Um, so why, why don't people want to be zombies? Because you're an idiot if you're a zombie. Yeah, but you don't know it. Right. I mean, but people, it's the whole Socrates. I'd rather be a um human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a stupid view though. I mean, <laughs> honestly, now if, if, if it seemed like it was just perpetually painful to, um, be a zombie, you know, if you're walking around, it's like, Oh, I need blood. It hurts. Uh, you know, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, that's bound to sound really weird, but whatever, we're going with it. Um, <laughs> Then that's, that's fine. But it doesn't seem to be that. It just seems yeah. kind of like a nice, pleasant, lumbering, you know. They don't a, seem to know that, like, their ears are falling off and their eyeballs are yeah, dangling. Doesn't, it doesn't bother. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, no one's sitting around going, boy, I sure would hate to be a little bird, you know. Or, <laughs> yeah. Sure would hate to be, you know, a, a worm or something. I mean, comparatively, I'd rather not be a worm than, than a human being. But, you know, it's, it's a... It's an existence. It's an existence, yeah. So... Um, I don't get that. Now, what about the vampire thing? What's, what's bad about being a vampire exactly? Um, I mean, you know, a lot of them seem kind of cool. Well, you're cursed to be evil. You're cursed to be evil. But, um, all right. So let's, let's go with the legend, right? Let's say that that's, that's how vampires are. You don't get to be angel out fighting the good fight. And, um, you know, you're not just hanging out in the park with the cool kids. Okay. So you're, you're evil. So that's bad. Um, But if you're, I mean, the, the more contemporary vampire story is just like, you're cursed to be really hot for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> right. Seems fine. So, so is it that we don't want to be evil things? So we'll, we'll, we'll sort of opt out. Um, all right. What if, what if you could be a non-evil vampire, right? Um, this is one of the things that, that we talked to some of our guests about, um, coming right up, whether it's, you know, it's bad to be immortal or something, but you know, um, Angel sure acted miserable all the time, right? He had to drink the same stuff over and over again. Um, Watch but, people that you love die over and over again. You know, you make a connection to someone. They, But yeah. if you could be a vampire and everybody else that you loved, you could turn. But what about the watching people you hate die, too? I mean, you know... I don't want to watch anybody die. There, there's well, more people I don't like than people I do like. And then I well, I find it very depressing to just, like, slowly watch humans destroy the planet. Like, watch the whole thing play out. Yeah, that that's true. Um, but that's that's not why typically people think it's um, undesirable to be a vampire. But I don't know. I would I would guess that actually the majority of people. So here here's the thing: if you if there is a heavenly reward after you die, and you're immortal anyway, and I think this is what a lot of people are working on this assumption that like okay they're gonna they're gonna die they're gonna go to heaven they're gonna be in a good place, mm-hmm. um, then why would you pick st- being stuck here on earth 
in a vampire form over that. But if, the, right. if that's, if you say to people, let's assume that uh, heaven is off the table. There is no such thing as heaven, but there is such a thing as vampirism and you could be a vampire and be immortal. I bet most people would do that. Yeah, I wonder. I would do it. Probably. I would do yeah, that. I would too. I mean, if, if nothing else, you know, you could just spend all your time listening to great podcasts <laughs> like I Think Therefore I Fan <laughs> at I Think Therefore I Fan.com. That's all one word. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the books you could read, right? I mean, there's several episodes of The Twilight Zone about people with, you know, all the time in the world on their hands. And, um, and then they break their glasses. And then they break their glasses, of course. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like a, a bad thing, provided you don't break your glasses to, to have that kind of time. Um, sure, if you come up, you know, against it all at the end, um, the, the planet's thrashed and whatnot. Although, um, if everyone's gone and the, and the, the planet's not producing food, but I don't need food anyway because I'm immortal. Um, blood. Yeah. Maybe you, you, you don't... got all the stores. You don't blood. die from not getting the blood. You just have bad cravings or something. Okay. I don't know. I, I'm with you. I, it, it doesn't seem that bad to me. In fact, I'm, I'm considering trying it. If anybody knows any vampires, and not just these kids that, that raves and whatnot that, you know, had their teeth surgically sharpened with their parents' credit cards, but real vampires, have them talk to me. I'm open to the idea. Now it's time for our Person on the Street segment. We asked Wayne Yuan, Christine Otterstrom, Zach Stickney, and Nick Berg the following question. Some undead creatures, such as vampires, are immortal. Do you think immortality is desirable? If so, would you like to be a vampire? Let's hear what Wayne Yuan had to say. I think that immortality, generally speaking, is desirable as long as we can avoid some of the pitfalls that come with immortality. Um, the number one sort of concern that I would have would be boredom. Um, but I'm pretty sure that as a vampire, I wouldn't be bored because one of the things that keeps me not bored is interacting with people I find interesting. Um, the people I love, the people I like, my friends, my family. My... And so... If I were a vampire, I would be able to turn the people I love and the people I find interesting into vampires as well. That way I would never be bored. Um, I also think that people overestimate the sort of ease of becoming bored. I personally love watching the same movies over and over again. Um, I like experiencing the same things over again um, because... The first time you experience it, it's something exciting and new. The second time, you get a different perspective. Things change. Um, you get to notice more details that you didn't notice before. And also, you can take a break from things. Um, I, For example, if I were an immortal creature like a vampire, I might spend, you know, a century in one place of the world um, and then move on to another place, spend a century there, and then go back to the previous place um, and see how that place has changed. Um, the world isn't static, so I don't believe that I would get bored, um, especially if I were bringing my vampire coven in tow. Christine Otterstrom, what is your take on this? I do not think that immortality is desirable for a number of reasons. Um, mainly, well, okay, one of them being... It depends on financial status, because if you're poor or you don't have, you know, if you can't afford to live somewhere, are you going to be stuck working some crappy job for a long time until you get something figured out? Um, so that could be an issue. Or I think I would be worried about my perspective on things, like my ability to not hold on to bad things that happen because everything everybody that you know is going to die and it might not be hard to be depressed about that and then the last thing i thought about was um it depends on if your health is always going to be good like if you live forever 
um, can you still have a stroke or what if you get Alzheimer's or another chronic condition where you're in pain all the time? Um, I don't know if that really applies to, to vampires and immortality, but it's definitely a concern if you're not in good health, but you're living forever or you're not in men good mental health, then that might be horrible. <laughs> so those are the main things I thought of and why I would not like to be immortal. What do you think, Zach Stickney? All right. For me, I think I have mixed feelings about immortality because on the one hand, I think it would be really cool to live forever and be able to watch the universe eventually collapse on itself. I think that'd be very interesting, but I also think immortality would be horrifying in the sense that, I mean, just getting older and watching everyone you know die around you and slowly wither and decay and eventually not really knowing anyone seems like it'd be pretty terrible. But I guess, you know, people like Wolverine have been able to find ways to keep going. As far as being a vampire, um... I like the idea of being very sexy and glistening, which I assume is what vampires do based on what I've seen in the media the last 10 years. Um, so I think I could be a vampire. I'd be happy with that. Nick Berg, would you like to be a vampire? Yeah, so uh, in terms of uh, immortality, uh, I think it is desirable. Um, I don't know that I'd want to do it alone. And in regards to being a vampire... Uh, a lot of times in the stories uh, you read, um, a lot of times they're um, alone. And so it seems like, I, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to do it in that regard. Um, as far as being a vampire itself, um, I think that could be interesting. That would be an interesting life. Um, you know, um, you get a lot of the mix from of you know who vampires are from storytelling some are good some are bad um you know they've lived for thousands of years or more um but i think uh yeah i, I wouldn't mind being a vampire um it'd be kind of an interesting way of life um, um as far as the traditional sucking of blood and all that i don't know that that sounds all that appealing, but that's just me. So maybe I'm not fit to be a vampire. I don't know, but um, it does sound somewhat interesting. Okay, Rates, what, what are we liking this week? Well, we're always liking American Horror Story. I know we've already mentioned this in our in previous weeks, but... Uh, it just keeps getting more interesting, and I thought the last week's episode was the best yet. Yeah, I, I think so too. We don't want to spoil too much, but um, the um, characters from Coven are really sort of taking over the show. Um, Not just Coven. I I would recommend to viewers who haven't uh, had the opportunity to dive into Apocalypse yet to go back and watch some of the other seasons because. There are some features of those earlier seasons that I didn't remember. Mm -hmm. And so there were moments in, in some of the more recent episodes where something was being revealed about a previous season and I didn't catch it because uh, it had been a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you might want to watch um, maybe the first eight seasons. <laughs> Well, just because it would be fun. No, but... Alternatively, you, you could just pick up a copy of American Horror Story and Philosophy and um, <laughs> and that'll that'll probably... Um, I don't think that that will be revealing at all about the plot points I have in mind. Rachel, trying to get people to buy the book here. Um, yeah, but anyway, so um, American Horror Story is is just fantastic. They, they set up for Apocalypse... Um, is great. They're starting to do a lot of backstories, um, mm -hmm. jumping back and forth. It's been so dynamic that I don't have any sense of what the main tension throughout the series is going to be, other than there's an apocalypse going mm -hmm. on and mm -hmm. and a, a certain individual responsible, the anti something or other. 
But, you know, you watch the first few episodes and you think, oh, wow, so this is, you know, these guys versus these guys. And then everything has shifted. Um, Ryan Murphy is just brilliant. What else are we liking? We went to see The Nun. We're liking The Nun. I'm surprised at the um, reviews. I mean, the, the, the reviews for this film are generally horrible, right? So um, The Nun is in the Conjuring series, right? It's another one of the prequels. And um, I think it's maybe the second strongest in the series behind The Conjuring. It, you know, so here's, here's my thoughts on why it might be getting bad reviews. I wouldn't give it a bad review, but I love horror films. Horror films don't do that well with reviews typically anyway. Yeah, right. Um, so unless there's something like artistic about the film or, mm-hmm. or something or, or making Oculus a social statement or, yeah. So I think it, it, it really helps itself to lots of horror tropes like mm-hmm. at, at every turn. Mm-hmm. And people might think shamelessly uh, helps itself to lots of horror tropes. Um, I won't go into any particular details, but um, but in my opinion, that's exactly what a person going to see a horror movie wants to see. Right. And, so, and, and there were lots of things that were novel about it, and the setting was great. Um, I had one moment where I cringed a little bit, um, and, and that's when the nun roared, and I thought, actually, I think I whispered to you, nuns don't roar, right? <laughs> It's like this big, rawr, you know, I'm a nun, <laughs> I'm going to eat you. <laughs> I don't know if I was doing a lion or a bear there, but it was, it was like, a, you know, half lion, half bear. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the performances were fantastic. Um, Has Tasia Farmiga, I don't know if I'm saying that right, from yeah. American Horror Story. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, so everything we're reviewing um, in this segment has something to do with American Horror Story pretty much. Yeah. So far. <laughs> we're up to two. But. Yeah, I, I thought uh, we we may be enjoying these these shows more than we would if it were in October, um, or at least the nun. I don't know. I I got getting the mood for scary material in October. Right. Um, yeah. So maybe maybe I liked it more than you did. Sounds like you liked it and didn't love it. No, I really liked it. Yeah. I, I really. Um, there's a twist in it, and um, I didn't see it coming, and that. That's sort of mm-hmm. a rare um, mm-hmm. thing for me in horror films, right? I mean, you, you can surprise me with lots of kinds of movies, but horror films, you know, generally telegraph these things, you know, well in advance. And so that was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I, I hope they keep making films in this series. All right, what, what are we not liking this week? Last night we watched um, the Netflix original Malevolent. That seemed pretty bad, right? Just kind of... Generally slow. I'm just going to, you know, cards on the table. I fell asleep before it ended. So there's, I'm going to say a one in 370,000 chance that it <laughs> picked up, p- pulled it all together <laughs> in the last 10 minutes. But um, <laughs> yeah, really, really didn't hold my interest. And then we're, we're doing this thing where we watch films, um, old horror films, just because we like to watch them all month long. And um, so we revisited the 2013 um, version of Carrie. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. Really great. Mm. I don't think it's as good as the original, but I don't think it's that far off. Tough to beat Sissy SpaceX performance. Yeah, I really liked... Oh, who was it as the mom? Julianne Moore. Yeah. Yeah, I thought she was good at being the crazy mom. Today's musing comes from Sandy. Sandy says, Today I'm thinking about why we, myself included, are so very angry with Susan Collins and not with the other 49 senators who voted for Kavanaugh. It's kind of like a student who fails at a test and then argues about one question that they think they have a shot of maybe getting credit for, while ignoring the fact that they missed so many other answers. Are we especially pissed that she's betrayed other women because we feel duped by her apparent indecision? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't think that it's that, right? I mean, it's true of all 49 senators that yeah, equally betrayed women in this mm-hmm. case, or all 51, I guess, that is how the vote went. Yeah, so it, it, it can't just be that, I would think. Um, can't just be, be betraying women, and it can't just be a woman betraying women, because if, if you view this as an instance of betraying women, other people did that too. Other women did that. Right. It's not just Susan Collins. Right, right. Um, other Republican senators that are female. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm feeling like it, it has something to do with the position that she put herself in, being the last one to say anything. It, you know, it, it 
some point, um, a lot of people's hopes were hanging on her, right? And then when they, they feel sort of personally let down, um, mm-hmm. and this is maybe a function of her being the last one to 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 speak out or you know to say this is you know or she was the second to last one where I, I stand on this issue um which is interesting if if that's right then she's getting a lot of blame for this in virtue of the fact that she took the longest to think about it and you know seemingly um sort of gave it a, a fair shot right mm-hmm. um yeah. she, she deliberated for a very long time where you know you can contrast this with Say you know someone like Orrin Hatch, the day that um, Ford's accusation became public, you know, without knowing anything about her, he was on TV saying, "Well, this woman's clearly disturbed, right?" It was the Nita Hill treatment mm-hmm. all over again. Um, so you know, you've you've got an awful lot of Republicans that just say, no matter what, I'm going to support this candidate. Um, didn't even consider it, and just you know, out of fairness. Um, True of the Democrats as well, right? I mean, before looking into Kavanaugh, a whole bunch of them had made up their minds that they were going to oppose him. Um, so in Susan Collins, you have somebody that, you know, now has quite a bit of scorn coming from people on the left. And she was maybe the one Republican that gave the, you know, closest thing to a good faith effort. I'll push back against that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I see what you're saying, but um, well, maybe this isn't even actually real pushback. But um, when people see people were waiting for her, she, it, she looked like she might actually be willing to assess the evidence, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then it's just such shoddy evidence. So the, the FBI investigation was a big nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, they weren't even allowed to. In interview important witnesses. So I think people saying, oh, there's one holdout for, you know, the rational assessment of evidence. We're expecting that to go differently mm-hmm. because surely if you assess the evidence. Right. For example, in the case of, of Murkowski saying that she would, would end up voting no as well as a Republican um, gave us even further, you know, more hope. I think sometimes when we make these moral assessments about the actions of people, we do it on the basis of uh, considerations other than rational considerations. So um, I don't know. I don't know that there really is that it really does make sense for us to uh, be more upset with Collins than with anybody else. I mean, so I'm thinking about the case. Uh, most people, I think, are familiar with this case of this woman, Kitty Genovese, who got uh, attacked and. I think like stabbed to death outside of an apartment building Mm -hmm. and a bunch of people in the apartment, a a crazy number of people in the apartment building witnessed it, but nobody called the cops. Yeah. It was Um, in New York city in the 1970s. They were all just on their balconies and looking out their windows and some standing by on the the street. Yeah. And in response to this, um, I think New York, uh, established good Samaritan laws or other, other places did that in response just to like, to like make it illegal for you not to do this or for there to be some penalty, um, for, for people that, uh, could have as- assisted someone, but didn't. Yeah, anyway, the, the last episode of Seinfeld was, was based on them violating that good Samaritan law where they witnessed uh-huh. the crime, but they laughed and videotaped it instead. Oh, it's and, been too yeah. long. I don't remember. Um, but so, I mean, I think about in that case, um, any, if there were a hundred people that witnessed the event, all of those hundred people in that case that could have called the police and didn't are equally morally responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we, if, if, if just one individual uh, had committed that or had, had failed to report, I think we would have treated that individual as tremendously uh, morally responsible. Like they did something seriously morally wrong, mm-hmm. but when it's more people, we tend to view them as, like almost as if the moral badness has diminished. Mm-hmm. They're all equally morally responsible, but less so or something like that. Right. Um, and so I think, but but there might be, and so I, another example is like how nobody is doing anything essentially for people suffering from lack of access to food, shelter, and medical care and clean drinking water in underdeveloped countries. Mm-hmm. We're all equally morally responsible for that. But sometimes, you know, the light, it shines on one particular actor and because the spotlight's on them we so let's say that we we could be a fly in the wall on the wall and witness 
one of those people in that apartment building not contact the police. Mm -hmm. That would probably affect our moral assessment of that individual person. And we might even come to the irrational conclusion that that person is somehow more morally responsible because we witnessed them doing that. We witnessed them doing nothing, you know, that's not, it's not rational. Um, but it's just kind of an emotive thing. Mm -hmm. And I think Susan Collins had the light shining on her. We were witnessing her decision Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's easier psychologically. We're more motivated to say there's something seriously, you know, that we're angry with her in particular, even though everybody else did the same thing. Right. And that ties in perfectly with, you know, Sandy's setup for her question. She's saying, well, you took a test and you, you, you focus on this one question. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous to think, oh, that's the reason I failed the test. Yeah. Even there's all these other things, right. but right. you know, if you've got the light shining on it, as you say. Yeah. Um, well, good. That, that was great. Um, Sandy, thank you very much for, for sending that Thanks, in. Sandy. Our second listener musing this week comes from Rosabel Edney. Rosabel writes, Hello, we are interested to increase traffic to your website. Please get back to us in order to discuss the possibility in further detail. Warm wishes. All right. So do you think it's possible for them to interested to increase traffic to our website? Does something have to be grammatical? Possible, metaphysically possible. What do we have in mind here? Well, any any sense of possibility. I I think if a sentence is so ungrammatical that it doesn't actually express a proposition, um, unless it's possible to be interested to increase traffic to your website, then I I don't think it's possible. So I don't know if we should get back to to Rosabel on this, or I mean I'm assuming she's listening. So. Um, Roosevelt, that's what we have to say about the possibility of you being interested to increase traffic to our website. Thanks, Thanks Roosevelt. All right. Well, that's a, a wrap. Episode five is in the can. And once again, everything came up Charbonneau. So what are we, what are we talking about next week? Well, uh, your new book is coming out. Ooh, just in time for Christmas shopping. <laughs> uh, Halloween shopping, if that's something... Yeah, yeah. When you know the kids come trick or treating, you can give them my book as a treat. This will be like you're one of those houses that gives the king size candy bars. Yeah, I'm thinking it's kind of like playing a trick on the kids (laughs) while giving them a treat, right? It's you know it's the inclusive sense of war. So anyway, the book is Westworld and Philosophy. So we're gonna chat with some of the authors, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is a really philosophical show, so it, it should be the source of a lot of great material. Great. Thanks again for listening. 